0: Hear now the word of God. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, you were free to leave us as orphans, to leave us without your word at all. You could have left us without any way of knowing you, and yet in your kindness to us, you gave us your perfect word. Would you give us your perfect spirit so that we can know what you have for us and help us to obey it as well? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Saying goodbye is difficult, uh, especially when we believe that we'll never see the person that we're parting with again. Uh, I have uh, spoken numerous times of my father and numerous times of his, his death. And I think the, more, the older I get, the more important I realize that he was to me. He died, listen to this date, in October 2001. Now think of that date and think of the events that came just before that date. This was a little over a month after 9-11. And I have, I have often thought of the sort of world in which he was leaving his wife as a widow and his children without a father. Only a month before he died, he lay in the hospital bed ...looking at the burning image of the Twin Towers in New York City. And all of us were scrambling and fearful and wondering what would happen on the other side of these events. What was really going to transpire here? Two airliners had struck the Twin Towers. One had hit the Pentagon, the center of United States military might, And one had been scuttled courageously in a field in the middle of Pennsylvania... All of these things happening and the world entirely upside down, completely confused. And when the cancer finally took my father, there was talk of going to war in the Middle East and even invading Afghanistan. So he went to be with the Lord in what, at least as far as my lifetime is concerned, was the most uncertain time in recent history. And to my mind, probably the most uncertain since the bombing of Pearl Harbor and i have often found myself wondering what it must have been like to be on the cusp of the heavenly kingdom and yet knowing you're leaving your wife, you're leaving your four children into a world like this where you don't know what's happening. And then you just slip away. Leaving behind the ones who depend on you has to be incredibly difficult and Paul has to do that in this passage this morning. I have come to to feel and believe there are very few things that, that we can't face if we know we've done what we can for those we're leaving behind. And our passage this morning, interestingly, it's the only recorded speech that Paul gives to Christians in the whole book of Acts. Look at the speeches that Paul gives in the book of Acts. He's evangelizing people. He's persuading unbelievers that that he is innocent and that the gospel is true. But not this text. This is a special text because this is a word for the church in Ephesus. Now, our passage isn't a passage about death. It, it, It is a passage about death in a sense Because Paul is never going to see their faces again. He is saying goodbye to the saints of Ephesus for the rest of his life. And in this moment, Paul is on the edge of a new adventure as he prepares to go to Jerusalem. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see how that transpires and what takes place there. But here is the question that we are left with. What will Paul say to these saints whom he is never going to see again? How will he prepare them for this new period of life when they won't be able to see him? They won't be able to experience his direct protection, his shepherding anymore. What do you do when you're about to leave the sheep and you were their shepherd for three years? Well, Paul finds peace of mind, but where does he find it? How does he find peace of mind so that he can go to Jerusalem and not constantly be looking back at Ephesus and wondering what's happening there? And our passage answers those questions, but it also shows us that the strength to face the future, as uncertain as it is, really is anchored in what God has always done. He's been faithful. He's been faithful. So where does Paul anchor his confidence for the Ephesians and for himself this morning? He anchors it in two things, God's past faithfulness and God's future grace. Past faithfulness, future grace, those are our two points this morning. The first thing Paul does in his speech, he immediately draws the attention of these people to God's past faithfulness. Past faithfulness. Remember remember what's happening here. He is leaving this church to a future of storms and struggles. And in this moment, he builds these church leaders from Ephesus up. And he fortifies them for the task of Christian living by first drawing attention to what God has done through Paul and through Paul's ministry. In a sense, he's talking about himself here. And in a sense, he's not. Because for Paul, to talk about his ministry is to talk about Jesus. In verse 24, he says, this is the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. So everything that he's said here is all about lifting up the Lord Jesus specifically for what he has done for this church. He's thinking about this church and he's saying, God has been faithful to you. God has been good to you. And he's reminding them that that Paul doesn't personally call these men to anything he hasn't been living out. When he looks at his own life and he points to his life, he says, I'm doing all the things that you're called to do as well. So let me let me point out to you four things that he gives them. First, he tells them that he's led a humble ministry in verses 18 and 19. Paul tells them that, that when he lived among them, he served the Lord with all humility. That's the phrase that he uses. He was a man who didn't put on airs. He didn't talk one way, but live another. He wasn't focused on appearances. Paul was who he was. He presented himself as he really was to people. And we get a glimpse of the way, especially the humility of his ministry in 1 Corinthians. Because in 1 Corinthians, Paul told them that he didn't come to them with eloquent words. He said, I'm not a good speaker. He had no illusions about his gifts He had no illusions about himself. And we see this humility perhaps clearest in this speech in verse 24 because he says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If we can say that, if we can say they are more important than me, we have the beginnings of real humility. Sometimes we think of humility and we think that that means having a low opinion of ourselves. But that's not really humility. Humility means everyone else is more important than me. They get pushed to the front. They're the ones that get the priority. Pride says, I'm important. Listen to me. Humility says, I am nothing. Christ is everything. There is such a huge difference there. Now, humility does have its dangers. Um, The teens, this last couple months, have been actually reading through C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters. And if you don't know Screwtape, the Screwtape Letters is a series of letters written from sort of a senior devil to a junior devil who's learning how to torment his new Christian that he's been assigned to. And in that book, Lewis talks about just how dangerous humility is. Because the minute that you realize you're being humble, you're in danger of swinging over and becoming proud of your humility, and especially if you point it out, to point out your humility to somebody is is the height of danger. And yet it seems like Paul is willing to take that risk here. Paul is willing to take the risk of pointing to his own heart and to point to his own service for the church. It is a testimony, I think, of, of the fact that Paul wants these leaders that he's speaking to, to see themselves the same way. He wants them to be able to say, I account my life as nothing. And it's not just a call for church leaders. This is a call that all Christians are called to. There was a leader in the Moravian church whose name was Count Zinzendorf. It's hard to forget that name. That is a memorable name, Count Zinzendorf. Count Zinzendorf. It sounds like a name you make up on the spot when you're trying to think of a disguise and someone asks you who you are and you just on the spot say, Count Zinzendorf. Um, Anyway, I'm impressed with his name, even if no one else is. Count Zinzendorf, he said this, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Ironically, we didn't forget Count Zinzendorf. But I think the point is, we're supposed to be ready to do that. We should expect it. We shouldn't have an expectation that our life is going to be so profoundly affecting to other people that we're going to be remembered for centuries afterwards. Rather, where are those who are willing to simply serve and die and be forgotten? Paul modeled this. Paul modeled this, and he's calling these leaders to do the same. And if you are a Christian, he is calling you to do the same as well. Because humility is being willing to say from the bottom of my heart, my only ambition is to make sure that Christ is proclaimed. Who cares if anyone remembers my name? Second, Paul reminds them that his ministry was a tearful ministry. Not only was it a humble ministry, but it was a tearful ministry, He says this in verse 19. He reminds us that he was serving the Lord with tears and with trials. And then in verse 31, he says, For three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And here's the thing I want you to notice. Even the tears that Paul shed were marks of God's faithfulness. Why is that? Because Paul ministered in this place for three years. You cannot spend that sort of time with people and come away disconnected and indifferent to the sort of agonies and trials and difficulties that are going on in their lives. After three years, Paul would have been there for deaths and weddings, the birth and baptism of babies, the sort of things that pastors see all the time. And this is the thing that I I notice. There are many people today, they believe that if they just stay home and listen to sermons on podcasts or on television, they're still doing church. And I understand, especially if you travel a lot, or I understand if you're homebound and you can't get out, that these things are blessings. I'm glad they exist. Um, But doing church on your own, living your solo Christian life... You miss out on one thing, which is you're not connected to a group of people who can weep when you weep and who can shed tears when you cry. Um, One of the things that happens is if when we do cut ourselves off, we end up having a self-selected, quote unquote, church. Right. We have a, a group of people around us that we've sort of chosen. And we've said, I'm going to sit with these people, and that's who I'm going to share the Christian life with. But the beauty of the church is that there are people in here that you would never spend time with otherwise, right? Your lives would never intersect. People from different ages, people from different backgrounds, different kinds of jobs. Um, And you don't run into each other during the week, and you would never meet each other during the week. And that's one of the great beauties of church is that God brings you together with all these people that you have very little in common otherwise other than the Lord. And when people don't open themselves up to that, they miss out. And this is one of the things that we see in Paul's life, that being in the church means exposing ourselves to hurt and suffering. Sometimes the hurts and sufferings inflicted by others, if we tell the truth about ourselves, and, and often, the tears and the hurts and the sufferings that other people experience, we end up weeping with those who weep. In my experience, though, people resist this, and, and, and secretly pastors resist it too. We don't want to weep. We don't want to be sorrowful. And yet, Paul shows us that God was faithful to the Ephesians because God put this man in their midst for three years, weeping for them and weeping with them which they were doing for each other too. Third, Paul tells the Ephesians that God's ministry to them through Paul has been a gospel ministry. Please don't miss this. Please don't minimize this. Please don't think of the word gospel and immediately say, that's a catchphrase. You, you know, we, they put the word gospel in front of everything, and the word gospel is a word that can be cheapened. But he reminds us in verse 20, he says, he did not shrink from declaring to you anything That was profitable. And then he says that the course God gave him was to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So God has been faithful to the Ephesian church because God has given them a man who is committed to declaring to them the gospel. The gospel is not a message that we should be good people, the gospel is not a message that we're all doing great. The gospel is not a message that says, hey, if we all get together, we can change the laws of the land. It is not a message that is designed necessarily to draw people in. People hear the gospel and a lot of times they don't like what they hear. No, the gospel says we have all been ruined by sin, but salvation is there for the taking through Jesus Christ. See, the gospel is something that every sinner on the planet needs. It's a message that the one who preaches it needs, too. Paul has been preaching this message for the Ephesians, and he's been preaching it for himself, too. Uh, just like the cook needs to eat, the preacher needs to eat, too. Uh, this I was brought to, to life for me by Sinclair Ferguson, a man who's preached for at least 40-plus years, probably much longer than that. And he was at RTS, at Reformed Theological Seminary, a few months ago. And I was just struck by this. He said one of the most important things he learned in the last few months and in the last few years was that he is the first person to sit under his own preaching. He's the first person to submit to his own preaching. He has to submit to the word that he proclaims just as much as everyone else. And so preachers need the good news that Christ saves too. And Paul has preached that message. And Paul has sat under his own ministry. Paul says, His has been a gospel ministry. Fourth, Paul also tells the Ephesians that God has been faithful because God gave him a complete ministry. A complete ministry. He says in verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Whenever a church hears the full counsel of God, they're in for a treat. Because the full counsel of God means that a church is not subjected to the favorite pet subjects of the preacher. Um, When Sunday comes around, if the pastor is being faithful, you you won't see him standing on a soapbox talking about his one favorite thing that he always likes to talk about. Uh, A church that is really hearing the whole counsel of God is bound to be built up and encouraged and discouraged sometimes in the same sermon. To declare the whole counsel of God means that sometimes churches will hear their favorite parts of scripture, but sometimes they'll hear the parts they're less excited by. So it means that a church will hear the glorious heights of a book like Romans, but they'll also hear from difficult passages like we find in Leviticus. It means that we'll be reminded that we are made in God's image and that there is something great within us because we've been made in God's image. But it also means we're going to be reminded of the darkness of our own hearts. We're going to be reminded that we need a Savior too. The whole counsel of God is a message that is bound to make people uncomfortable. But graciously, it's a message that can still the most troubled heart. Paul is painting for his listeners the picture of a ministry that has lasted three years. It's a ministry that that Paul is not ashamed of. It's a ministry that can leave Paul concluding, I preach to you the faithful and complete message of Scripture. I lived as a model of what it is to repent. I lived as a model of what it is to ask forgiveness. I told you the truth. I never shrank back from it. I am leaving this place with a clear conscience. In other words, he labors the point that God has shown them faithfulness upon faithfulness upon faithfulness. He has been good to you. That's the first point, past faithfulness. The second way that Paul anchors his confidence and the confidence of the Ephesians is not only in God's past faithfulness, but also in future grace. So you see, Paul doesn't know everything. He doesn't know what the future holds exactly for the Ephesians, but he is sure of some things the future has in store for him. He reminds them in verse 22 that in his future, there is a trip to Jerusalem. But beyond that, the future is a fog to him. He says, he says, I'm going not knowing what will happen to me there, except that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. And he knows one more thing, and it's, Something that 12 verses later Luke tells us makes them weep. He says, And now, behold, I know that that none of you will see my face again. None of you will see my face again. You could just imagine how dependent they've become on Paul, how dependent they've become on his ministry. How are we going to find someone who will preach like you do, Paul? How are we going to find somebody who lives in our midst who's like you? You could just imagine how difficult it would be to cope with that. It takes tremendous faith and trust in God to be able to do what Paul does here this morning, to, to leave those that we love when we know there's danger ahead. Because he says there there are going to come wolves among you. He knows that he is not leaving them in peace. But being able to do this involves looking to the past and remembering what God has done. And on the basis of who God is and the grace he's always shown, our faith for the future is sustained. On the basis of what he's already done and the character he's already shown shown himself to be. I am faithful. I've shown it to you. And that is not going to stop because I, the Lord, do not change. So Paul, Paul tells us what allows him to leave this church, and it's in verse 32. This is the reason he can go. It's a, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give, the, give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He's leaving the Ephesians, and their fears for the future are in God's hands. You see, this isn't Paul's church. This was never Paul's church. He may have planted it. He may have watered it. He may have cared for it. He may have chased away the wolves. But this isn't his church. The Puritan John Owen wrote a final letter before he died. And I really think that he echoes the Apostle Paul here. Because the the Apostle Paul isn't dying, but John Owen, when he wrote this letter, was dying. And Owen was leaving behind an English church that was in tremendous flux, tremendous disarray. And, And in his last letter, Owen does what Paul does. He knows his place in the church, and he knows that the church has always and will always stand upon the faithful promises of God. Not the shoulders of John Owen. Listen to what John Owen says in this letter. He says... I am leaving the ship of the church in a storm. But while the great pilot is in it, the poor loss of a poor under rower will be inconsiderable. Live and pray and hope and wait patiently and do not despair. The promise stands invincible and he will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Look at where John Owen's confidence is. It isn't in the leaders in the English church. It isn't in how well he's trained them. It isn't in any of those things. He says, look to God. Look to his faithfulness. Look to the way he sustains. And those who are left behind, who are in a sense left behind, let's take Paul's words and let's be fortified for the work we have ahead. We have a mission That's been given to us. We have a calling to keep. We have a promise to stand upon. One of the great marks of leadership isn't that we experience success, however we define that. It isn't that we saw numbers grow or spearheaded some sort of major project. The real mark of leadership is whether the place that we leave, is healthy enough to continue without us. By the way, that's not just for pastors. I think that principle works in business or in any other area of life. How well you led sort of is defined by what you left behind and whether it was healthy. Um, there are churches out there which are not healthy. The preaching is sound. Everything about it is sound, and yet it's unhealthy because it's built around the personality of one man that if he left the church, the church would collapse. There was a church in Seattle only a couple of years ago when the pastor left the church. The whole entire church crumbled and it doesn't exist today. Um, not that I'm sad about this, but the Crystal Cathedral, Robert Shuler died. What happened? It got sold off to the Roman Catholic Church. It was a place that stood on the shoulders of a single person. One of the real tests of leadership isn't whether you can amass a following. It's whether you can leave something healthy behind when you go. Paul shows us what it means to lead in this passage because he spent himself. He spent himself so that this church will know how to respond to wolves. And so that they will know how to deal with those who teach error. Another part of leadership means living in a way that can be observed and emulated by church members. This is... One of the reasons why a church needs elders and pastors, because people do need a living example that they can set their eyes on. And that's part of the reason why Paul, as he reviews his work among the Ephesians, he speaks of the way he ministered. He speaks of the fact that he's confident he fulfilled his ministry faithfully. I suppose there's nothing quite like leading with a clear conscience. And as a church member, there's something about knowing that your pastor led you the best he could And that while not perfect, he did lead faithfully. Uh, Only a year or two ago, the pastor who pastored me when I first became a Christian, he retired from the ministry. And I remember writing to him and I, I never had told him what he meant to me. And I wrote to him and I said, thank you for living out the thing that you preach. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for staying the course This has meant the world to me, even though I haven't even been in your church for years and years. Knowing that you are still serving and still being faithful and serving with a clear conscience has been encouraging to me as a Christian. So thank you. And there is something about that faithful example that matters to us. And Paul knows it. That's part of the reason why he mentions his own example. And by the way, that goes for other forms of leadership, too. For example, parenting. Right? If you are a parent, then you understand the importance of living the thing that you teach your children. Um, you know, my parents were not perfect, but I will always remember that my father was always pointing his children to Jesus. Fathers and mothers, be those kinds of leaders in your homes. Lead in such a way that your children can say, "I saw my parents' flaws." Uh, If I was to ask for a show of hands in here and I was to ask you, did your parents have flaws and did you see those flaws? Every hand would go up. But we should lead in such a way that our children can say, I saw all of the flaws, but my parents showed me what it was to repent. My parents showed me how to deal with sin. They always pointed us to Jesus and not to themselves. Keep in mind, nothing Paul does can take the place of the Lord Jesus. This is self-evident, but but all church leaders are sinners. All church leaders are fallible men and and are flawed individuals. And they'll struggle against sin for their entire lives. And, And if you ask my family, they would tell you, they know my sins well. This is all pastors, and it's also true of Paul. But do you see what Paul does here? He actually ends in verse 35... Not by talking about himself. The last thing that Paul says to the Ephesians is a quote from Jesus. It's a quote from Jesus. That's how he ends his speech. He ends by setting before them Jesus Christ as the final word. There is always a danger of becoming so attached to a leader, whether it's a favorite pastor or elder in the church... That that you start to put your hope in that leader. I've I've seen what that can do. I can see what happens when that takes place, and it's destructive. But Paul does talk about what God has done through him in his ministry there. For Paul, though, it's a credit to God's grace and mercy, not Paul's glory. Think about this. Paul is a sinner. Paul knows this. His whole ministry is predicated on the testimony. He was a persecutor of Christians, a terrible human being. He is the chief of sinners, and he makes sure that everybody knows that. And so the work of a pastor, the work of an elder, the work of of a, a parent disciplining their children for that matter is not to put on airs that we've got the Christian life all figured out, that we don't sin, we don't mess up, we don't hurt one another. The goal is not for us to model the appearance of sinlessness. The goal isn't the appearance of godliness. It isn't the appearance of holiness. The question is not whether we will sin. The question is, what will we do when we sin? That is what all of those who follow us, whether they're in the church or whether they're our children or whether they're in any other area of life, need to see us doing. How do they see us responding to our sin? Are we quick to repent? Are we quick to say, I was wrong? Are we willing to say what we were wrong about? Are we specific? Specific sins should be repented of specifically. And so if I, if I can be blunt, I will say, your pastor is not a man worth following. But I will always point you to who is worth following, which is Jesus. And I, I'll do it in flawed ways. I will do it in imperfect ways. But I will never stop pointing you to Jesus. And I know I can speak for the elders of this church when I say the same is true of them. And the thing Paul has done, his whole ministry is he's come in humility. He's come in need. He's come without an ounce of self-interest. And he spent all this time saying, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. He has spent his ministry as a thirsty man, telling all the people where to find the water. And the answer is, I don't have the water. We don't have the water. All we can do is point. point. And the answer is, it's with Jesus. It's with Jesus. So look to Christ and know that he'll always be faithful because he's always been faithful. Let's pray. Lord, you are faithful. Your faithfulness reaches up to the heavens and stretches up to the clouds. All your paths are steadfast love and faithfulness to your people. You are faithful and we remember your faithfulness this morning. Lord, as we think about the future, would you build us up not by presumption but by setting our eyes on you yourself, your faithfulness, your goodness, your mercy, your kindness. Make us a people who set our eyes on you and not our circumstances or the situation in which we may feel shaken or fearful. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.